This is episode 165 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Tackling Heart Disease with Dr. Deepak Srivastava. Hey everybody, this is Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Got to give a nod right now to the, some of the brightest hearts out there that are on the front lines dealing with this coronavirus mm -hmm. catastrophe. Uh, you know, it's not just uh, the doctors, although Arun and I, you know, I'm at New York Presbyterian. He's at Cedar sinai We're on both coasts. We have people near to us that are being called to rank, but also all the people out there on the front lines, even the people selling groceries, the machinists who are making the small parts for all the vents that we're mobilizing to make. Thank you to all of you. We hope that if you're listening to this podcast, you, uh, you know, you get some joy out of it. We appreciate all that you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you to everybody who's helping to keep our world moving forward from the medical professionals to everyone in the grocery stores. Thank you for, you know, doing your part in maintaining, you know, society as we know it through these really crazy times. All right. So now back to the point here. Uh, Let's talk about stem cells. Before we get to that, though, are you interested in finding out which of your favorite researchers are being featured in upcoming episodes of the podcast? Check out our calendar at stemcellpodcast.com slash events to find out detailed information about upcoming guests. Stay tuned for future episodes featuring Sheila Chari, Carl Kohler, Hans Clevers, Hans Clevers, people, and many, many more today. We have an icon, Dr. Deepak Srivastava from the Gladstone Institute on the podcast to talk about his research on the molecular events regulating the signaling, transcriptional, and translational networks that guide cardiogenesis. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming right up. But first, did you know that you can model arrhythmias and cardiomyocytes derived from human pluripotent stem cells? Well, of course, Dr. Srivastava definitely knows about that. Watch Stem Cells On Demand webinar to learn how patient-derived and gene-edited human pluripotent stem cell lines can be used to model cardiac disease in vitro. Visit www.stemcell.com slash cardio webinar. And I'll kick things off with a story that just came out in Nature the other day titled Recapitulating the Human Segmentation Clock with Pluripotent Stem Cells. Really neat work coming out of uh, Kyoto University in Japan. Last author is Kantas Alev. First author is Mitsuhiro Matsuda. So this is kind of following along the lines of some other papers that we've actually talked about recently talking about somatogenesis. The somites are, of course, the, the segments in the body that ultimately give rise to the vertebrae, for example. And some earlier work that we actually talked about looked at using gastroloids as a model for somatogenesis, pluripotent stem cell-derived gastroloids that you can actually look to, um, to see the formation of these kind of segmented structures, which ultimately, like I said, give rise to the, the vertebrae. 
But this is kind of taking one step back and looking at the mechanisms that actually give rise to the somites, so uh, somitogenesis. Um, so folks you know, at Kyoto have reconstituted this human segmentation clock, which is a focus of embryonic development research. You know, Folks have been studying this in a lot of different model organisms. But the cool thing here is they're actually able to reproduce some of these mechanistic findings in human pluripotent stem cells, induced pluripotent stem cells. So from way back, from the first division of the fertilized egg, there's a whole network of proteins and genes that kind of interact with each other to construct the pattern of cells that ultimately form the organs, right? So, I mean, the analogy they like to make is like a pendulum on a clock. So everything, everything like, you know, every single swing of the, the pendulum needs to be kind of aligned really carefully. And that kind of goes hand in hand with gene expression that has to pulse on and off to ultimately give rise to some of these segmented uh, structures like the somites. But of course, our understanding of human development is pretty limited because obviously it's tough to get early human tissues, right? So you need good experimental models. And so that's where, you know, human pluripotent stem cells come into play. We're talking about somitogenesis, which of course begins around 20 days after fertilization in humans. And this is where the body develops these somites that determine the segmented pattern of the body. And the somites are actually... Uh, it's specified through the segmentation clock, which is what it's called a genetic oscillator. I know uh, a few months ago, I think Olivier Porquier at Harvard also had a pretty similar paper on this. It's kind of looking at a different marker of somitogenesis, but this is looking at, I believe, a protein called HACE7. We'll, we'll get into it. So there's a segmentation clock, which is a genetic oscillator that controls somitogenesis. And while the segmentation clock genes and their role in development have been pretty well studied in mice and other model organisms, zebrafish, for example, which is powerful because it's transparent, you can see it happen in real time. Of course, we don't really know how these things happen in humans because there aren't human developmental, you can't really study human development um, in vivo, right? Early on, it's just like not an ethical thing that you can do, right? So the next thing to do is to address the problem using stem cells, pluripotent stem cells. So uh, this is the a collaborative effort through a, a bunch of different folks at the Riken, Kyoto University, uh, which is, you know, kind of, uh, I think, Shinya Yamanaka has a pretty powerful effort going on there in, in at the Riken, so you know he's involved with this as well. So what they wanted to do is start off by mimicking the signaling pathways that are active during early development, and they succeeded in generating pre-Semitic mesoderm, or PSM, along with its progeny. And then they studied the genes that were actually being expressed in kind of a rhythmic pattern. They showed that they not only like oscillated with a period of five hours, I thought this is a really cool part of the paper, they show that these genes oscillated every Every five hours as opposed to two hours that happens in mice. So there's they're already showing that there's a species-specific difference in the way that somitogenesis occurs. So not only were they able to show this oscillation, but they also showed that there are certain novel genetic components of the segmentation clock that they're ultimately looking for. 
So the next thing that they did was look at expression in these genes. So a wave of expression that actually happens in different genes over the course of uh, the specification of these segments, right? So they use CRISPR to actually generate some custom fluorescent lines for this HES7 uh, protein. And then they actually assessed the function of these proteins, uh, the function of the key genes, as it relates to spine deformation, there's actually a, uh, a disorder that they're looking at here that's uh, caused by the misregulation of the segmentation clock. And they're able to show that when you actually knock out the HES7 gene, you get defects in segmentation, which could ultimately give rise to uh, pretty severe phenotypes that they see in this uh, segmentation disorder. They also generated iPSCs from people who actually had this disorder. Um, so it's a really neat study because you're going from a beautiful in vitro observation of development and answering a question related to the specification of the, the segmentation clock, which ultimately gives rise to the somites, which turn into everything, right? So that's step one. They're able to figure that out uh, in, in vitro. And then the, the second part was the disease modeling aspect. So they're able to show from these, uh, what is the name of the disorder? SCPD-1, um, that's the name of the disorder. It's called, oh man, it's hard to, hard to pronounce, spondylocostal <laughs> dystosis, SCD. So that's the disorder that they're actually modeling using iPSCs, and they're able to show um, when you actually knock out these important regulators of somatogenesis and the segmentation clock, you can see those defects, defects start to manifest in a dish using these iPSCs. So it's the full story uh, from in vitro to translational. That's probably why it's in nature. And it's answering a very, very important fundamental developmental question. I think it's a beautiful study. Beautiful. And I, you just said it, the, the scope is so broad. Um, and to, to start with something yeah, so basic as somatogenesis to address something maybe we all knew about the developmental timing, mouse and human, but just to, to lay it out there really elegantly, simply, um, and to have a framework within which it makes sense mechanistically. And then to get to the, come on, disease modeling and IPS, stop it, guys. It's too much, but, uh, you know, very dense, but a tour de force and very impressive work. This is, uh, this is something that, you know... You can't, you just gotta, you just gotta, if you were working on this, you just gotta move on <laughs> to something else. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I think like for me personally, yeah, I think the disease modeling aspect, a part of it was cool. I mean, that's kind of related to, to what I do too with like human IPSC cardiomyocytes. But I think that the fact that you can use iPSCs to really replicate some of these fundamental developmental principles, I think that's absolutely beautiful. And I don't think that gets a lot of recognition, especially in this field. Everybody's talking about the translational applications of iPSCs for drug screening, for disease modeling. But this, I think, is like something that's forgotten. And it's cool that they really emphasized it here. You don't have to worry about the whole maturity problem, right? Oh, are these cells mature enough for, for modeling or whatever, right? They're good. It's good that they're immature, right? Because that's you're trying to recapitulate those immature fetal developmental processes. And so I think it's perfect for, for this sort of application. Yeah. And, and, as a, you know, myself as well, trained as a developmental biologist, I don't think people appreciate 
that every single time this happens, you know, human, any animal, it's miraculous that it's an ordered process that makes sense and has boundaries. And I think the boundaries really is the key there is that we make these oids and, and we think we have some approximation of the organ, but this shows how, how, you know, how elegant, how beautifully and, and ornate the control mechanism is, um, but also how simple, like everything in nature. So yeah, I mean, it took took a lot to get there, but it's it's a beautiful piece of work, and I'm going to use that as a springboard towards another technical tour de force, although not quite related. This is a story about uh, fat. All right, adipogenesis, um, getting close to the summer, maybe thinking about your your white fat in particular. Although I don't know if anyone's going to the beach anytime soon. <clears throat> the uh, Adipocyte, all right, let's talk about the, the forerunner there, the adipocyte progenitor. It's a mesenchymal cell type, okay? Um, and it's all throughout the body. It has potential to differentiate into different types of adipocytes, but also myofibroblasts. So it has broad potential. But within the adipocyte lineage, you have the white, uh, white fat, white adipocytes that uh, store lipid, and then you have the brown and beige. Uh, adipocytes that convert lipids to, to make heat. You know, that's like the good fat. Everybody wants the brown and beige fat, though it's not that easy. So we're talking about mesenchymal cells, right? Uh, and very prominent amongst mesenchymal cells is platelet-derived growth factor receptors, okay? PDGFR alpha and PDGFR beta, which are both considered as markers for adipocyte progenitors. But they're also expressed on a whole bunch of other cell types. They're pretty generic in terms of, um, well, if you consider them as markers. Uh, so there is some question as to their, their, wh where they fall specifically within the lineage of adipocyte progenitors as markers. Um, you know, there's a lot of questions about uh, their expression. Uh, and although there's agreement that PDGFR alpha, it, it includes most or all types of adipocyte progenitors, it's a little bit more murky when it comes to PDGFR beta, okay? There's a lot of different studies with a lot of different conclusions. And this is because probably they've all used different transgenes to do lineage tracing, um, which, you know, depending on how you make your transgene, what generation it is, what inducible construct you're using, where you put it, um, you can get different results, right? So here, uh, you have Lauren Olson and his group at the Oklahoma Medical Research Foundation. You don't hear a lot coming out of there. So good for you, Lauren Olson, doing work. Um, so here that the strategy that Lauren and his group use is they did like a direct parallel comparison of alpha and beta using the same genetic approach. Okay. Uh, and, you know, add to that. Forget about whether or not these things are markers. There's still a lot of questions about the function of, of PDGF receptors in these progenitors. Like, what do they do? All right. So they use this sequential dual recombinase approach that allows these mosaic PDGFR mutant cells with the Crelox within the Crelox system. And also, they have this flip FERT system for use as a reporter. So they can track the fate on a single cell level. They induce this mutation in R-alpha or beta or both, and then they track the cells that have that mutant. 
Uh, and using that tool, which technically, I mean, I just said it in a sense, but technically this was a, a major effort and, and a lot of work. So I don't know about the, our, our people over there with the segmentation clock. It's not necessarily on par with that, but it's a lot of work, okay? Um, uh, they show at the end of the day that adipocytes are derived from our alpha during postnatal growth and adulthood. Uh, in contrast, adipocytes are only derived from our beta during postnatal growth. Okay, so that's a simple thing. Nice. You just kind of, I guess, set the record straight, maybe nail in the coffin, probably not, but let's hope for lineage tracing with the PDGFR uh, alpha and beta. But functionally, I thought this was the more interesting part. Uh, they showed that postnatal mosaic deletion of PDGFR alpha enhances adipogenesis and adult deletion enhances this beta-3 adrenergic receptor-induced beige adipocyte formation, okay? So the, the adult deletion, again, increases the beige formation. We like the beige. Um, on the other hand, if you delete our beta, it enhances white, brown, and beige, the whole gamut. So maybe not so good. Because probably, you know, knowing my luck, it'll all be white and I'll be flat. <laughs> so I don't know about that. So go for the R alpha. But uh, fundamentally, I think the, the bottom line here shows that both of them are inhibitors at the cell autonomous level of adipocyte uh, differentiation. And it shows, I think for the first time, and there's probably some obscure studies out there, downregulation of PGF signaling, it's, a, it's an important factor in transitioning adipocyte progenitors to adipocytes. So maybe we can all get a little, a little fitter and look better. A little fitter or maybe a little fatter. I don't know, <laughs> one of the two. So a couple of things here. Um, one, PDGFR, you know, you talked about this briefly. This is, uh, you know, a marker that's found in a lot of different lineages. And, you know, it's obviously very important for adipocyte specification. As you mentioned here, you know, the, the switch between the alpha and beta is kind of important for specifying the, the right uh, type of adipocyte or the, you know, the, the right amount of adipocyte. But when it comes to the translational potential, I mean, I, I joke about it, right? But do you think there's like an interest here when it comes to what if we can modulate the right knockout of PDGFR hmm. uh, and we can make, you know, more beige fat? Do you think people would be actually interested in that? I don't know. It, there's like obviously a big weight loss market here in LA, you know, for all these movie stars and stuff like that. But you think there's a translational potential for something like this? You know, I wouldn't say not directly, right? You could argue, yes, it's really just academic, right? You're not going to give someone a drug that targets their PGFR because there's going to be a lot of unfortunate sequelae there, right? Unfortunate byproducts of that treatment. Um, I'm thinking like vascular collapse, or something like that. But, uh, you know, Understanding how you can control differentiation in these cells may have value. I'll tell you, you just said it. There's a lot of people that are taking their fat out, right? What about this? Take the fat out, take some progenitors, instead of making it white, make it beige or brown, and then put that back in on the low, low. You get someone with, you know, they're, they're a little chubby, but it's a positive. It's, it's burning, making heat. It'll be hot. What do you think? Yeah, we can give it a shot. You know, fat is okay. Fat is fine. They I do anything. It. In cedar cyanide, believe me, they will try anything. <laughs> the, the plastic guys over there are insane. 
Come on, man. Don't be hating on us here in Beverly Hills in LA. We still have the sunshine. At least we have that. Oh, stop it. Stop it. I got to I got to put that in there somewhere. Anyways, next story is uh, shifting gears to the pancreatic side of things from adipogenesis to pancreatic cancer. Big shift. Title of the story is senescence induced vascular remodeling creates therapeutic vulnerabilities in pancreatic cancer. It's a cell paper. So, you know, it has a whole lot of meat on its bones. So the last author is Scott Lowe. First author, there is Marcus Rossetti. And this is coming from your neck of the woods up there in Memorial Sloan Kettering. So this is talking about pancreatic cancer. And as we've mentioned before on this show, pancreatic cancer is lethal. It's one of the most challenging cancers to treat. And that's in part because pancreatic tumors are surrounded by scar tissue. It's a really dense layer that prevents medicines, therapies, and even immune cells and like immunotherapy from penetrating to the interior of, of pancreatic cancers, right? And so this is focusing on uh, pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, which is a really severe uh, pancreatic cancer. So they're actually able to show that there's a, a two-drug combination that you can use to actually make these pancreatic tumors more sensitive to other medicines. So it's like a drug-induced drug sensitization kind of study. So the two drugs that they actually used to induce sensitization were, uh, were their trametinib, which is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, I believe, and palbocyclib. Man, I can never pronounce these drugs. <laughs> I don't know. There's like a whole story behind that. Like, do you know about that? Like why they make drug names like so hard to pronounce? Is no. it like, like some sort of algorithm or something? I think they just want to watch you stumble, my man. Well, well, it's working. Okay. <laughs> Palbocyclib. All right, whatever. So those two drugs by themselves aren't actually killing the tumor cells. But what they do is actually trigger a state called senescence. And you can think of senescence kind of like an alarm state. That's kind of what they refer to it as. The cells that are in the senescence state actually kind of emit signals that recruit other cells to come in and repair the damage, okay? And part of the response that, you know, these cells are emitting this like kind of SOS signal are going to, part of the response is promoting the growth of new blood vessels. You might think that, oh, blood vessel, uh, angiogenesis, in a tumor, that's not a good thing, right? You want the tumor to get smaller. You don't actually want the tumor to develop blood vessels. But it's it's a it's a good thing in this situation because the blood vessels are going to serve as highways, kind of, to actually allow other medicines and even immunotherapy, like you know, cytotoxic T cells, uh, to come in and actually target the tumor cells that are deep inside that pancreatic cancer. Okay, so the combination of the trametinib and the palbociclib actually reduces the size of the tumors when actually given in combination with another chemotherapy drug, um, gemcitabine, or actually a PD1 blocking immunotherapy. So the stem cell aspect of this study was actually they were using, I believe, pancreatic organoids as kind of a transplantation model to actually assess how effective this therapy, this combination of therapy was, was doing. And their approach actually showed that both in mouse tumors and human, I believe, you know, stem cell derived tumors uh, growing in mice, mice, uh, they were able to show the combination therapy actually did a pretty good job. And it actually increased 
dramatically increased how long the mice were able to survive. So a lot of good hope for people with uh, uh, pancreatic cancer, right? So the idea is you're converting a so-called cold tumor, something that's not amenable to response by the immune system or attack by the immune system to a, to a hot tumor, something that can be attacked. It's powerful, right? Because we've talked about pancreatic cancer again and again, and there's a lot of really cool new approaches that are being used to target this really devastating disease. And this is actually showing that, hey, maybe like a combinatorial therapy is what you need to kind of break down that shell in pancreatic cancer, kind of break it down, then open up those cells, those critical cells at the interior of, tum of the tumor to attack by other immunotherapies and other chemotherapeutic compounds. It's a cool combinatorial approach. Combinatorial, for sure. One combination on top of the next. There's a million tongue twisters in there, but I mean, I get it. The adjuvant and uh, now we're talking like accessibility. There's a, a lot of ideas competing, another quiver, I mean, another arrow in the quiver. Uh, but my question, and this is an obvious question, so maybe, you know, is addressed <laughs> in the paper you addressed, but when you open up the tumor to, uh, to the therapy, does that also give a, an escape path for metastasis? Did they look at like any kind of mets in these models? Ooh, that's a, that's a really good question. I actually don't know. It might be in the supplement. Um, but that, that makes perfect sense, right? If this is really as bad of a cancer and such a, a metastatic cancer, then if you open up that highway would some of those cells escape into other parts of the body? That's yeah, really solid question. Yeah, I mean, this is a problem with all these really tough cancers that we haven't been able to crack. It's not for lack of trying, right? We've been working on this for decades. We've done such a good job. Uh, when you see another paper come up for like glio or pancreatic cancer, one of these tough nuts, you get excited. But a, a big part of me is always like, oh man, I just can't wait to see what the cancer does next to foil this attempt. But like you said, it's, it's hope and uh, we could use some hope right now, yeah? Absolutely. No, for sure. So here's a little bit of hope also offered from the computer modeling world. This is a, it's a kind of a, a stem cell peripheral story, uh, but it, you know, it starts with stem cells and it ends with stem cells. So I'm going to get into it. This is a story about the heart, which is a good segue to our guest, um, although... I'm not sure it's exactly up his alley. Uh, so what we're talking about here, though, this is right up his alley is congenital heart disease. You know, heart defects, pediatric patients is who we're talking about here, just despite um, major advances that we've made in surgical, not we, but the, the human race has made in uh, <laughs> surgical management of these cases. It's still the leading cause of death in newborns. So um, we're not quite there yet. Uh, and the, the mortality... And morbidity, even from treatment, stems in part from the post-operative complications that are associated with synthetic grafts, okay? So grafts or patches or valves, all these synthetic parts that are often used to perform the procedures to save these kids' lives often can lead to some complications post-operatively, right? Um, and a lot of that is because, at least the idea is because they lack growth capacity. You know, these are synthetic, static, inert pieces of, you know, construct, right? And what happens there is you get the soma, the surrounding soma that they're around overgrows them. Uh, and then you get stenosis uh, as, the, as the kid grows up and outgrows the graft. 
and then typically then you need another intervention and it can lead to more complications so sometimes even the surgeons will kind of just at the at the outset they'll like either delay the surgery they'll say let's let this kid grow up a little or they'll oversize the implant even. And that leads to all other kinds of complications. You can have more thromboembolism or you can have, you know, developmental delay because you have chronic hypoxia because the graft isn't that functional or even heart, heart failure because there's too much volume. All right. So yeah, there's a lot of problems with the existing approach. Although we've done really well, there's still some issues and it's just a lot of intervention um, that can lead to complications. So this is the impetus behind this idea that's been out there for a while which is that let's make a graft that's alive. Let's make tissue. And nowadays we're talking about let's make it from the patient's own cells. Um, and this is the idea of tissue engineered vascular grafts. Okay, these TEVGs um, where you seed autologous cells within a biodegradable polymeric scaffold, polymer scaffold. Um, and then as the tissue like grows into that scaffold, the polymer degrades and then you get just a, a vessel, right? That's the idea. So using that approach, this is a, a big group here led by Christopher Brewer, but also with uh, uh, Toshiharu Shinoka. They're both at the, um, <clears throat> they're both at the Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, but also Jay Humphrey at uh, Bio, Biomedical Engineer at Yale University led part of the work. Um, they did, they did a, a clinical trial, part of these, few of these guys have done a clinical trial in Japan where they implanted these TEVGs, tissue engineered vascular grafts in children with single ventricle cardiac anomalies. Okay, they were undergoing uh, heart surgery. And they were safe and they had growth potential. So it was really promising. You know, they had stenosis observed in only one out of 25 patients three years later. So that's great. Um, given that result, they went into, moved it into U.S. trials. But here's the thing. When they started the U.S. trials, they found that there was a really high incidence in the first six months post-graft uh, of graft narrowing and stenosis. And they had to treat these kids with uh, angioplasty in order to for them to recover. Right. Okay. So that's all the basic. I mean, that's the foundation for this story. It started with the, these TEVGs and a clinical trial that I wouldn't say went bad, but they had to suspend. All right. So they started there like, what went wrong? Why was there the stenosis? So they did this data informed computational model. Okay. And did in silico parametric studies of the development of these tissue engineered vascular graphs. You got to look into the methods because I'm not going to explain how, how this they can model this stuff on a computer, but it's intense. Um, and this, the simulations, the models predicted that there would be earlier stenosis, just like they observed. And what's more is they also suggested that the that that narrowing would just go away. It would reverse through an inflam inflammatory mechanomediated mechanism. I mean, I have no idea how computer modeling could just predict that, but they did. And I right up to this point, I'm like, I don't know about this. Why is this in science translational medicine? But then I realized why, because I continued to read. They tested <laughs> that hypothesis that was just generated in a model with the existing inputs. They did an implantation into ovine uh, vena cava, uh, in a similar graph model, and that confirmed the prediction that these tissue-engineered vascular graphs would stenose, and that stenosis would resolve spontaneously. So, I mean, it's it, what's amazing to me 
is that we're on the cusp of it seems like, do we even need to do experiments anymore? Like this model, this thing, the prediction came true. And what it means is that we maybe never needed to do angioplasty on those patients. Um, and also they take now the information from that modeling, they input it so that they can design the graft at the outset so that inflammatory mechano-mediated mechanistic resolution, it just starts going right at the outset so that there never is any stenosis. So, I mean, I just think this is an amazing view of things to come. You know, we're doing a lot of Zoom meetings, Arun. We're doing a lot of like work from home. <laughs> this, everything is in silico. We're in the cloud. I feel like I don't need to go to lab after I read a paper like this. So, hey, I'm hopeful um, that uh, at least some of the work can carry on in silico. Man, we'll be plugging into the matrix anytime, anytime now. Just going to plug into the matrix and do my cell culture remotely. That's the dream. But anyways, CHD, you know, our guest knows a little something about congenital heart disease. Deepak Srivastava, he's using iPSCs to model various forms of CHD. CHD is, uh, you know, still the leading cause of birth defects worldwide. And like, like you mentioned, we've actually become really good. Well, not you and me, but the surgeons have become really good over the last couple of decades in correcting these congenital heart abnormalities in, in kids, you know, almost immediately after, after birth. Um, I can't imagine, like, I can't, it must be such a difficult procedure to do, although I'm sure if you do it, like, you know, for years and years, you must be really good at it, right? Because these hearts are tiny, tiny, tiny. I think there's a lot of hope for computational modeling in congenital heart disease. I kind of have like a, a pie in the sky kind of view um, as to how computational modeling might integrate into, you know, our, our, um, the surgical approaches. So kind of hear me out. So like, what if, for example, we're able to identify um, that a person has a mutation in a gene through like, you know, uh, genetic screening in, in utero, for example, right? What if you can use some of those um, iPSC-based approaches to identify that, oh, if you have a mutation in this gene, it's going to lead to congenital heart disease, okay, right? So we identify that a particular unborn child has a genetic mutation. Could we be able to predict how that mutation will unfold phenotypically, right? So like how that particular mutation would cause a specific cardiac abnormality through computational modeling, right? I think that would be a really cool, uh, you know, tool in the arsenal for the surgeons down the road, right? So you might be able to say, all right, we have to keep an eye out for this particular form of defect that's going to arise when this kid is born. So you have to be on the, the lookout for that, right? And so maybe it's a way for the, the surgeons to kind of prepare hmm. for that particular type of abnormality. I don't know, kind of a pie-in-the-sky approach, but I think it would integrate like the IPSC modeling that we do with kind of the, the translational surgical stuff down the road. Maybe it'll work. I don't know. I, I think that's, I mean, right on. I think that's the hope that, that we all think about with personalized medicine, that we get to that point. And yeah, I mean, when you see a story like this, and that's why I'm just bugged out by the computational modeling, like, I don't understand it, but it worked. Um, and that, to me, though, is a double-edged sword, because the fact that I don't understand it makes me a little bit skeptical. And it's not a skepticism that's born out of um, any knowledge. Uh, it's born of ignorance. But the one thing that I do know 
uh, because it's a fundamental principle, it's basic, is that you, you get out what you put in. And that's what I, I worry about in terms of like modeling nature, so to speak, or modeling development. It's going to be really, the output is going to be a synthesis of the input. And the input is most of the time it's driven from us. So it's our understanding that goes in and it's going to be some derivative thereof that comes out. So I think what we would need to get to that point is we need to get the AI going, my man. We need something that can observe firsthand. And I don't know how, I mean, it's something that I can't imagine. doesn't mean it's not possible is that this AI needs to see the cells. It needs to see the molecules. It needs to see the mm -hmm. processes, you know, directly or indirectly, but the input has to be totally unbiased and, you know, it'd be a beautiful thing. Uh, you know, not, not least so it's cause we could be productive, you know, let the computer do the work and, and we can just enjoy, sit back and, and rub our palms together, enjoying the results. That's the dream, man. I mean, but you're absolutely right. Like garbage in, garbage out, right? You have to have a good data set going in for your predictive modeling. The same kind of thing goes with single cell, right? We talk about this a lot. You have to have a good data set going in to actually have, you know, discussion worthy data coming out on the other side. Well, we've got a bunch of bias that we can share with our guest, Deepak Srivastava, although I would love to hear his biases because I think they're correct. Um, before we get there, do you want, uh, do you work with human pluripotent stem cell derived cardiomyocytes? Uh, a few of us on the show do, not myself, not anymore. You should use stem cells, stem diff, cardiomyocyte media and supplements to differentiate, enrich, expand and cryopreserve functional HPSC-derived cardiomyocytes. Stem diff cardiomyocyte media is compatible with human embryonic stem and induced pluripotent stem cells. And the resulting cardiomyocytes can be used for disease modeling, drug discovery, cardiotoxicity screening, probably other things that we're not thinking about. Learn more at www.stemcell.com slash stemdiff-cardio. All right, you guys, I'm delighted today to introduce our guest for the interview portion of the show, Dr. Deepak Srivastava, who is the president of the Gladstone Institute, also director of the Roddenberry Center for Stem Cell Biology and Medicine at Gladstone, and of course, president of the International Society for Stem Cell Research. He's a real luminary in the field, had the grace to join us today. Thank you, Dr. Srivastava for joining us on the show today. Pleasure to be here. Well, the pleasure is ours. Why don't you start by just giving, I mean, you do so much. You've done so much. Why don't you start by telling us what's on your mind right now? What are you doing now? What's the emphasis of your lab and the research focus? So uh, because of the times we're living in, when you ask me what's on my mind right now, of course, uh, COVID-19 is a lot on my mind, uh, but, uh, but that's a bit separate from my own uh, laboratory's interest. Uh, although, uh, being a cardiologist, we are seeing that uh, the reason, one of the reasons the fatality rate is so high with COVID-19 is that, that this virus seems to be affecting the heart also and is causing heart failure and sudden cardiac arrest. Hmm. And uh, so part of our effort actually is geared on trying to understand how this virus is affecting heart muscle to see if they're clever ways where we could uh, intervene in that and, and maybe it, at least to reduce the mortality from it mm. based on that. Mm. 
But more generally, I would say your research focus is cardiac development, pediatric, adult, the whole gamut. Is that right? The whole gamut. So I am trained as a pediatric cardiologist. So I take care of children who are born with malformed hearts. And uh, that's what really got us into the stem cell field to begin with, because those are that disease is really an issue of the cells in the embryo at a very early stage. Uh, since the heart is the first organ to form in an embryo at a very early stage, something goes wrong and the cells that should be instructed to form specific types of heart cells uh, don't get the right signals. And then you're left with a baby who's born with a cardiac defect. And so uh, for years, our lab uh, was interested in understanding the, the gene networks that are dictating those self-fate decisions um, and uh, we had discovered many critical genes from human genetic studies and animal studies, uh, but we're often limited to uh, understanding some of the later processes, uh, but not the earliest self-fate decisions because those were occurring before you could actually access a, a, an embryo, and they weren't human cells. So uh, it was when human stem cell technology became available that we quickly uh, adopted that so that we could understand how stem cells are getting the instructions to become specific cells uh, in the developing organ. And uh, we've, uh, over the years, asked how, how can we leverage that technology, stem cell technology, to both understand mechanisms of disease and also uh, use that knowledge for regenerative medicine. And that's, that's been our main, major pushes of interest. So Deepak, since you brought it up, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the COVID-19 pandemic and in particular its effect on the stem cell community, since of course this is the Stem Cell Podcast. So as the current president of the International Society for Stem Cell Research, you recently sent out a message to members worldwide detailing what the ISSCR is focusing on during this pandemic. For example, you emphasize policy initiatives to protect the public from clinics that are offering unapproved stem cell treatments for COVID-19, as well as urging the U.S. government to lift restrictions on research using human fetal tissue that could be used to study COVID-19. So could you elaborate a little bit more on what the ISSCR's mission is uh, and focus is during this pretty unique moment in history? Uh, certainly. So uh, the one of the areas in terms of the policy that we are we are trying to to dislodge is around fetal tissue research, and uh, this is an area that uh, is essential for developing most rapidly a effective vaccine for COVID nineteen and any other, other virus. Uh, much of the viral viral vaccines that have been developed in the past and understanding how we can regulate our immune system in this way has been done through the use of humanized mice. And what that means is where we take, uh, you, one can take fetal thymic tissue, uh, incorporate that into a mouse, and those fetal thymic cells will uh, reconstitute the immune system in a mouse, whereas postnatal or adult fetal uh, thymic tissue won't. And so that's been the, the model through which uh, our virologists and uh, Gladstone and the, many across the world have been able to understand uh, and develop new therapies for viruses and other pathogens. So the ban that was placed on that last year has been is really disrupted our ability to do that. And so ISSCR have been, has been advocating 
uh, and trying to develop policy that we can get through Congress to uh, relax some of those restrictions. Hmm. And then uh, in terms of the stem cell clinics that uh, popped up over the years uh, across the world, they pretty much any disease you can imagine having, you could Google and find some place that would say they can cure that with stem cell treatments. And obviously most of those are unproven technologies and, uh, and in the worst cases are, are, are just, uh, are, they're just preying on individuals' desperation for new treatments. And so the same thing would be true for the COVID-19, but the fact is there are no stem cell treatments for COVID-19, and we want to be very clear with that with the public so they're not misled. Yeah, you see a ton of that looking around these days is people exploiting the desperation and panic, right? And with the gouging for goods, and of course, in the healthcare space as well. Um, and of course, ISSCR is doing what they can to educate on, on that front. But, you know, another on the other side of that, a really remarkable thing about the scientific community, society in general, I think, is the capacity for us to come together uh, in response to something like this. And it's an existential threat, right? Both, you know, our scientific infrastructure, our economy, our lives, everything. I remember it was, you know, a year, two years ago, whenever it was, uh, I'm getting old, but uh, during the Zika epidemic and stem cells then, embryonic stem cells, neural progenitor cells were leveraged rapidly to understand the mechanism of transmission and even to develop some potential therapeutic approaches for that disease. I know this is early days and it's a, it's a moving target, but do you think and how do you think stem cells will play a role in addressing COVID? I mean, you kind of alluded to it in your intro there, um, but maybe you could elaborate a bit more on how you think we could use stem cells to to model or to develop therapy for this new plague? Yeah, it's a great question. And we're already seeing that come into play. Uh, for example, uh, at, at Gladstone, one of our investigators who's a virologist has been, has developed uh, stem cell derived lung organoids, human lung organoids. So these create some of the three dimensional structure of the human lung. And uh, we are in, and since the greatest degrees of fatality are caused by lung, the acute respiratory distress syndrome that occurs in the lung and the heart, as I mentioned, we are uh, using these lung, human lung organoids to infect uh, them with the virus and to understand what are they doing in those cells? What are the proteins that the viral, the host proteins that the viral proteins are interacting with and hijacking? And uh, as we test for new drugs to disrupt that process, uh, we're doing so in the relevant human tissue, which are the stem cell-derived lung organoids and stem cell-derived human cardiomyocytes. Mm. So in the absence of stem cell technologies, we'd be doing all this drug discovery in uh, cells from another organism and uh, hope that those would translate to the human system, which sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So I think we're definitely at an advantage uh, because of the stem cell technologies that have developed that allow us now to both do mechanistic discovery and drug discovery uh, in the precise, relevant human tissue. Hmm. 
So speaking of IPS cardiomyocytes a lot, and I mean a lot has been said on this show about IPS cardiomyocytes, you know, the pros and cons of using them as a model system for studying adult cardiac diseases and potentially for for cell therapy. And of course, the advantages of using them is that they're human cardiomyocytes and that they can be mass produced. And the big negative is that they are quite immature in comparison to the true adult cardiomyocyte. But coming back to your work, you're actually using the IPS cardiomyocyte in a way that sort of gets around the whole immaturity problem. And namely, you're using them to study uh, developmental defects of the heart. And I personally think that modeling defects in cardiogenesis is a, is a great application for these cells since they are inherently fetal-like in nature. Do you agree? So could you talk a little bit more about the IPS cardiomyocyte and, in your opinion, the right way to utilize it? Yeah, so uh, you're absolutely right. So far, our field has been unable to get iPS-derived cardiomyocytes to become adult-like. And that's pretty much universally true for almost every cell type. For whatever reason, the field has been blocked. And there's likely a common you know, reason for that because it's, it's true for every cell type. Um, so... Having that being said, that doesn't mean they're they're not useful for certain things. And so I think one just has to be careful and wise about what you use it for. As you mentioned, our laboratory uh, often uses uh, these cells to understand that early cardiac progenitor cell fate decision events and how human genetic mutations uh, that cause congenital heart disease uh, to understand the, their mechanism. And so for that, we actually do want a fetal-like cell. An adult cell would be the wrong cell type to use for that set, that such studies. But even certain adult diseases, uh, as long as the relevant proteins are present in this immature cardiomyocyte, uh, in many cases, one can still effectively model new drug discovery on a human IPS-derived cardiomyocyte for an adult disease. There's certainly those that you can't simply because, uh, say, the gene that's mutated that causes the human disease simply isn't expressed. Then that would be a pointless effort. Uh, but uh, So I think you, one shouldn't study those. But it doesn't mean you should throw out the idea of studying using these cells uh, for uh, other discovery despite their immaturity. Obviously, it then requires reality testing once you make any discoveries in some adult setting. And, and while the rodent system is not um, suffers from being a diff obviously different species, uh, what we often do is go back and forth and we'll make a discovery in uh, human IPS-derived cardiomyocytes. We'll reality test that in an animal model and whole, with whole organ physiology, recognizing that uh, a negative result in that system um, is with the caveat that it's a different species and mm. it could simply be because you're studying a mouse and it's not a human. Mm. Uh, but the times when you see positive uh, confirmatory results in both systems, I think one can be then quite confident that that would be true for the human organ. So, yeah, we talk about uh, modeling, tremendously useful, also understanding mechanisms of cardiac development, tremendously useful. Uh, you've done a lot in both those fields, but I would argue that some of the big claims and the press in early days when ES cells were first derived from human embryos was heart repair, right? It was making new heart for, for diseased heart 
cardiomyocytes. Uh, I know you've worked on that too. I mean, you're not confined to pediatric or, or developmental modeling disease. You, you've done, I know you have recipes for modulating adult cardiomyocyte proliferation. So, you know, you're not naive to that field and you, you have an interest there, I'm sure. What's the next big thing in your opinion in terms of stem cell applications for cardiovascular disease as far as repair is concerned? How critical do you think stem cells are going to be? addressing now this is the number one killer we're talking about how critical do you think it's going to be for develop uh, addressing cardiovascular disease in in the developed world is it going to be the main line in the future at some point or do you think there's there's other other approaches now that are just more practical than what may have been originally the idea in terms of regenerative medicine regenerative applications of es cells yeah, that's a it's a good point. And the cardiac uh, landscape with stem cells for repair has been a complicated one. So let me just start by saying that um, some some years ago there were a, a number of clinical trials that were initiated with uh, quote unquote stem cells for cardiac repair that were bone marrow derived or circulating. Uh, stem cell, blood stem cell derived therapies. And thousands of patients have been enrolled in such trials. And I think the long and short of all of that over a decade worth of effort uh, is that uh, A, those cells uh, never had the potential to become beating heart cells. Uh, B, there was a little evidence of that uh, what was suggested as a potential paracrine effect to improve cardiac function. There was little evidence of exactly what that mechanism might be. And three, the actual clinical trials uh, upon several meta-analyses, I think it's quite clear now, have not had significant clinical benefit. So those were with stem stem cells that uh, were purported to have some benefit but were never meant to become new cardiac muscle. That's different than uh, true embryonic stem cell or IPS cell derived cardiomyocytes, uh, which are just now entering clinical trials. Hmm. So, so there, um, the hurdles have been that, uh, as we talked earlier, they don't fully mature. And so it's unclear when you put them into the organ, maybe they would get more mature and there's some evidence for that, but we certainly know that what we're transplanting uh, is a very immature cardiomyocyte that may or may not be able to contribute to significant func- uh, functional improvement. Uh, they've had difficulty electrically connecting with their neighbors, with the existing myocytes. And initially, there was a problem of scaling production to get billions of cells, but I think that's solved, and we can, in fact, scale to produce unlimited quantities. Um, and so as a result of that, there um, are a few clinic, one clinical trial that's begun in Europe and uh, a few others that are being planned uh, uh, in, and have taken studies through uh, primate, uh, uh, primate studies that are showing in small, number, small numbers of animals some potential benefit. So I think there's that approach that uh, if the some of the hurdles can be solved, like arrhythmias, which has been a, in the primate studies was a significant issue uh, at the early stages, uh, if those can be solved, then I think there's potential for that. But it is 
complicated and there are a number of hurdles and just getting cells to engraft is difficult in sufficient numbers. Hmm. Um, recognizing all that and having tried that in our own lab some years ago and being met with significant frustration, about a decade ago, our lab decided to take look for alternative approaches to regenerate the heart, still using principles we learned from stem cell biology. And um, soon after the IPS discovery was made by Shinya Yamanaka, who is an investigator with us at the Gladstone Institutes, um, where he was able to demonstrate that a combination of a few transcription factors could convert an adult fibroblast into a uh, embryonic stem cell-like state. Uh, our lab, being down the hall from his, had asked, you know, if you can do that, uh, perhaps one could take fibroblasts that are in the heart already, which are abundant, make up 50% of the cells in the heart, and convert them not to a stem cell, but maybe directly into a new cardiomyocyte right in situ, right where they are. So this really builds on this, the notion of cellular reprogramming, uh, where if one is able to control a cell's fate at will, then you just need to know what code, what the code is, uh, and introduce that code into a non-myocyte cell already in the heart and convert them right there. And so we embarked on a screen uh, to identify those factors and. Uh, presumed that since nature is making a heart in an early embryo, that it would be some combination of the factors that are normally essential for cardiogenesis that we and others had figured out over the previous 10, 15 years. And through that sort of uh, ex exploration, we did arrive at a combination of uh, three transcription factors that were sufficient to reprogram a heart in situ. And so we think that uh, as through a gene therapy approach is a very viable clinical approach. And we've refined that over the years, uh, translated into human and large animal studies. And now that uh, technology has uh, been licensed to a startup company that we spun out from Gladstone called Tanaya Therapeutics. Hmm. And they're taking that forward to a clinical trial and they've reduced... Um, that concept to a potential clinical product uh, with the right gene therapy vector and the right combination of genetic material with safety studies. And uh, they're pushing aggressively to get that into an IND and into a clinical trial. Hmm. So I think that's one approach that doesn't involve actually a stem cell trans transplantation, but uh, couldn't have been, wouldn't have been discovered in the absence of the conceptual framework of the stem cell field of controlling cell fate. Hmm. Uh, and similarly, um, again, taking advantage of learning from what the fetus does to inform us for the adult, the approach you mentioned that we also have uh, demonstrated is uh, not just converting a fibroblast in the heart into a myocyte, but could we uh, reprogram the adult cardiomyocytes to do something they normally don't ever do after birth, which is to divide again. And if we could program them in a way, some way to do that, then we could generate, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of new cells with a single round of cell division if a whole bunch of cells divided one time. 
And, and so, again, we learn from the fetal heart where their cells are dividing, cardiomyocytes are dividing as the organ grows. And we ask, what does the fetus do that now the adult can't do? What's lost in cell cycle regulators? And again, uh, it turned out that no one or two factors, cell cycle regulators were enough, but a combination of four actually resulted in stable and efficient cell division of the adult cardiomyocyte. Uh, and when I say that, I mean that the cells would divide and actually stay alive because if a cell doesn't want to divide and you make it divide, the most often, most common consequence is they kill themselves because they shouldn't have done that. They're generally chromosomes are unstable. And we found that in most cases, that's exactly what happened. We could actually get cells to divide. Well, that wasn't so hard, uh, but then they would kill themselves. Uh, but we ultimately did find a combination of four cell cycle regulators that worked in a coordinated fashion to ultimately result in stable cell division that improved the function of a heart in a mouse hmm. so far. And uh, that uh, we have to still take forward in, and explore how we can apply that clinically in a safe manner. So as a fellow cardiac and stem cell biologist, I'm no stranger to the incredible work that your lab has done over the last few decades, really teasing apart the fundamental mechanisms driving cardiac development. And recently, we've actually both been a part of the NIH's Bench to Bassinet program and the Pediatric Cardiac Genomics Consortium, or PCGC, which is working to identify the genetic causes of human congenital heart disease and to relate some of these genetic variants to clinical outcomes for people with heart defects. What do you think is the end game for such a massive genomics effort like the PCGC? Do you think it's to better understand the mechanistic impacts of these kind of variants using disease? disease models? Or is it like the creation of a master list of disease-causing genetic variants that clinicians could refer to down the road? So what can we ultimately do with this genomics information to improve the lives of people with congenital heart disease? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for asking that. So congenital heart defects are the most common of all human birth defects. And really uh, over 1% of all, all children born worldwide suffer from this. And so as somebody who cares for such children, and their families. It, and I can tell you, when a, a child is dying from this, it's one of the and it's one of the most devastating conditions. And even when they don't, and are we've gotten pretty good at surgeries to palliate the disease and keep kids alive. Uh, but those with more complex disease, uh, what we now know is, as they're in the United States alone, almost a million and a half survivors of congenital heart disease. As they're getting older, they're having ongoing sequelae of their initial insult. Uh, for reasons that we're still exploring. So what I think uh, this effort of understanding the genetics has been essential. And it's starting to reveal um, in, in many cases what the genetic framework is of the mechanisms that are, are going wrong that results in the initial cardiac defect. So you ask about what the what is the end game? Is it just knowing and just knowledge or Will it lead to some valuable intervention, given that the defect has already occurred? It may have occurred in the first six weeks of gestation. Um, the way I think about this are, is in two areas of potential therapeutics. The first is, as I mentioned earlier, we, we're pretty good now at keeping most of these kids alive. Um, but what we're not so good at is the heart failure that many of them get later, the uh, on other uh, consequences that they have side effects um, 
as they get older, which we're now realizing is often connected to the same genetic mutation that caused their developmental defect. That same gene is often involved in homeostasis or maintenance of the organ specific aspects over a lifetime. And because there's been a mutation in that same gene, uh, as these kids get older, they get other cardiac problems. And that's where the opportun one opportunity lies, is if we can understand the mechanism of that postnatal uh, homeostasis defect, then that's an area to intervene with a drug or a therapeutic that mitigates that lifetime risk. A really good example is uh, when kids are born with uh, problems in their valves, particularly the aortic valve, uh, they often don't even know it, or they may know it and we do something at the beginning of life to deal with it. But in later decades in life, in an age-dependent fashion, those valves get hard and brittle with calcium deposits and then need to be transplanted, ex explanted, and replaced with a mechanical or a pig valve. And there are actually 100,000 of those done in the United States alone every year. And so that, that's an example where years ago, 15 years ago now, we discovered a genetic cause for that developmental problem, which turned out to be a mutation in a gene called Notch1, it's a famous developmental gene. Uh, heterozygous mutations cause just that valve defect. And uh, over the years, using uh, uh, human IPS models to understand mechanism, we figured out that the fundamental problem in that disease is a cell fate switch of a valve cell gets confused and now gets reprogrammed to think it's an osteoblast-like cell. And it does what a good osteoblast should do, and it lays down calcium. Hmm. And that's the crux of the disease. And that allowed us to then, that understanding that came from IPS cells, allowed us to then do a drug screen in IPS cells to find a drug that would mitigate that cell fate conversion. And we've tested that drug in mice. It works. And now we're hoping that we, for the first time, have a therapeutic, because right now there's no clinical therapy for this disease, a clinical therapeutic uh, to prevent or slow down this calcification event uh, that really started off as a birth defect. Hmm. So there's a clear example of by understanding the genetics of a developmental defect, even though you can't affect that because it's already done, you could maybe affect the ongoing uh, degeneration of tissue that might occur related to the exact same genetic condition. So that's one aspect. I think there could be a variety of settings where you could deploy that approach. You're going to ask a question? No, I mean, I'm just in awe. It's so beautiful the way, I mean, anytime, this is such a geeky thing, but when you hear another scientist talk about that path from the problem to the target, yeah. to the mechanistic understanding, to the therapeutic, it's like you get a little shiver. So I'm just over here shivering. But uh, <laughs> since you invited me, I'll ask a question. You know, the, it seems like what you're talking about here really started with, uh, maybe I'm over, overstating it here, but it started with like the human genome project, you could argue, right? It was that beginning of big data. And, uh, you know, scientists ever since, it seems like they've been in bed with the technologists moving toward higher throughput deeper sequencing, super resolution, all this stuff, super tech. And I'm a fan. Um, I'm shivering, right? But when something big like this corona global pandemic settles in, you start to reframe your thinking a little bit. And, and I had this question already set before you 
had that answer. And now I kind of, I get it. I, I don't necessarily need to ask this question because I get it, how just understanding a thing can lead to a real solution. But I'm going to ask the question anyway. You know, there's there's the, another side of this too. There's uh, several governments around there are monitoring cell phones to see where people have been to mitigate the spread of coronavirus. Yeah, we're on board. That makes sense, right? Then there's this other thing, remember the Golden State Killer, the cold cases with the 23andMe, you're cracking these cold cases using genetic information. It's hard to argue with that. You know, hey, if you haven't been a serial killer, you, you should be fine with that. Um, but still, right, there's, there's, there's questions and there's these scenarios people talk about, like you clone Brad Pitt from his hair follicle. Of course, it's totally ridiculous, but there are real questions that actually make sense and we should think about. Uh, and bearing in mind that none of us here is a, a ethicist or anything. Um, just I started talking about how big tech and the question is, is there, is there a potential for, or what do we have to do to make sure that this big data that we're getting in all this people, you know, meta level, how do we make sure that there's no abuses of the genetic information or cellular material? I mean, I'm sure you've thought a lot about that at the ISSCR. Can you just talk about that, that we, issue? We have. It's an, it's an important point. And, you know, even the story I mentioned started with patients that I took care of and, uh, and you know, then enrolled in the study and sequenced their genome. But even then, we talked about, you know, the privacy issues around their genetic data. And if uh, if we if it becomes part of their medical record that uh, X number of people in their family have this genetic mutation and they're at higher risk for this event, mm. then would insurance companies discriminate against mm. them and either charge them higher premiums or not insure them, right? And uh, unfortunately, it's still a concern that there are we still don't have strong legislation to protect people from genetic discrimination. Um, and so I think going forward, as we have more and more uh, people uh, have their genome sequenced, which will happen, it's going to happen, uh, we will be able begin to be able to correlate genetic variation better with uh, disease risk. And at that point, uh, I think people rightfully should be concerned and the field still has to solve and legislators have to solve. How do, how do we make sure that uh, those are only positive effects they gain, but not the potential negative effects from genetic discrimination or other kinds of abuses that could occur? Life mm. insurance, mm. Uh, long-term care. If you know you're going to have a higher risk for Alzheimer's, maybe you can get everything else, but you won't get uh, long-term care insurance. Mm. That's a that's a potential threat. So, so we we you know we are concerned about those things, and it's going to take that's another area for policy advocacy uh, where the ISSR is eager to play a role in shaping that conversation. Hmm. Um, but when, one thing you also mentioned is technology. Uh, and how important that is in big data. So it's maybe worth mentioning, and you, again, using that story I told you as an example of how uh, it took 15 years for us to get this far, but in part is because repeatedly the technology wasn't ready. Hmm. So we discovered the genetic cause for this condition in 2005, um, but the animal models did not recapitulate the same thing as a human did in a heterozygous state. So we're kind of stuck. In fact, it wasn't until Shinya Yamanaka discovered iPS cells 
and uh, that we went back to the patients and said, let's take your skin biopsy, make your iPS cells. Uh, and then we thought we would be able to make the mechani mechanistic discovery. But we did that, and it also didn't work. It didn't work because there was too much noise in the system. It wasn't until we could do efficient gene editing hmm. and correct the mutation in the patient iPS cells and have what we call isogenic controls to compare the two. It wasn't until then that the biology laid itself out. There was too much noise before that. Uh, and then uh, we had to use a lot of uh, computational and omic approaches to really analyze the whole gene network with machine learning approaches uh, to see what really happened, that, that this sulfate conversion was occurring, only became apparent through a lot of very deep computational biology that wasn't even a, a present previously. Hmm. So it wasn't until all that could come together that we could actually understand the disease. And it was all tech-driven. Uh, so in addition to trying to treat postnatally uh, sequelae of congenital heart defects, it's my long-term hope that ultimately we'll be able to identify the genetic variants that put parents at risk for having a child with a birth defect, in this case, a cardiac defect. And if we understand those that are at the highest risk and understand the mechanism by which those gene variants are altering the developmental process, we should be able to find preventive approaches mm -hmm. in those parents to actually result, even with that genetic variation, where we could prevent uh, the in the occurrence of the developmental defect. And the best example of that is the folic acid story around spina bifida, mm. where by increasing the folic acid in maternal diet uh, through a variety of public health measures has completely eliminated two-thirds of all spina bifida cases within a matter of a few years. It's really an amazing uh, story. And so we're hoping to find the folic acid equivalent for congenital heart de defects, and we think that could be true for many other human birth defects. Hmm. So like Dalen was saying, I get, I'm getting excited about this. You know, I'm getting shivers. Just the idea of going from a mechanistic discovery to actual translational application and, you know, the role that iPSCs could potentially have a, you know, play in that. I think that's super exciting to hear about as a stem cell biologist. So that's really, really cool. And so shifting gears a little bit, Deepak, you wear a lot of different hats. Of course, you're the head of the ISCR and you're also the president of the Gladstone Institutes in San Francisco, having been a PI there for a couple of decades. We actually recently had Todd McDevitt on the show who expressed his love for the Gladstone after being recruited there a few years ago. I think he said something along the lines of working at the Gladstone is the greatest paid sabbatical that he's ever been on, something like that. So what's, yeah, you know, I thought it was a nice yeah. little plug. Yeah. So what's kept you there? What's kept you there at the Gladstone for all these years? And what's your vision for the, the growth of the Gladstone during your time as president? Yeah, so I've been there for 15 years now, and I started as president two years ago after directing the cardiac area for a number of years. And uh, I'd say that uh, there's there's no uh, scientific there's no utopia, but I think Gladstone manages to get as close to scientific utopia as you can probably <laughs> get. <laughs> it really is just a wonderful place to work. Um, 
in part because uh, it's set up so efficiently that everything is things are just easy to get done, uh, whether it's administrative things or scientific things. Uh, the culture is fabulous where people uh, interact deeply in teams. That's how we're designed uh, in disease focused teams. Um, and uh, with our we're about 500 employees. So with our relatively uh, we have critical mass, but our relatively small scale, uh, it's easy to do decision making and uh, pivot to new areas like we have with COVID very quickly. Um, and so it's, it's just there's very little friction in the system. And so we can focus all our t efforts and energy goes in, into productive things. So I'm there for life, for sure. Uh, wouldn't ever work anywhere else. Um, but in terms of uh, where I think our future is, um, you know, I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, data science is playing a bigger and bigger role in all areas of life sciences. And so one of the first things I did as president two years ago was to start a new institute within Gladstone around data science and technology, recognizing that the, they, we've hit an inflection point in science where things are happening more rapidly. We're understanding things at a deeper level. But it's really, if you step back, it's been really driven by technology developments and the ability to have a proper analytics and data science around those technologies. And so we're making a big investment in computational biology and AI and in recruiting faculty that are developing some of these cutting edge technologies, the next generation of them. And, and in our model, we <clears throat> tightly integrate that uh, with a uh, deep knowledge of uh, human biology and disease mechanisms. Uh, and it's that uh, intersect that we think will be most powerful in, in go being able to go from uh, genetic variant to disease mechanism to uh, therapeutic cancer. And we also recognize since our mission our, uh, is for science to overcome disease. While we do basic discovery science, um, if we kept discovering new targets for human disease and they sat on the shelf, we would not be fulfilling our mission. Mm -hmm. And while we need to stay in our sweet spot of discovery, uh, particularly after the 2008 recession, it became clear that the landscape had shifted and uh, capital was coming in at a later stage and it was imperative to de-risk further than what we normally would in order to get commercial investment. And so we uh, now employ three full-time business development folks who have background in industry to help us make creative deals, whether it's venture capital investments for spin-out companies like Tanaya uh, or creative biotech or pharma deals where our scientists stay involved one step further than they normally would uh, to ensure that those discoveries that might have legs to affect humanity, that we make sure that we're doing everything we can to see that it gets a chance. Mm. And so we're very active in that area and will continue to be. We've spun out seven companies in the last four years, despite our relatively small size, based on our discoveries. And it's purely in order to to make sure that those could help people that we care, care about with the diseases that we care about 
uh, if they might, if they have a chance. Uh, you've also started some companies. Uh, you just mentioned one of them. There's another one though that was acquired by Bristol Myers Squibb. So I mean, this isn't small scale. Um, indeed, stem cell biology is arguably nucleated a, a new emphasis on commercialization of scientific endeavor. Maybe I'm wrong there, but it feels like it. Um, among the new generation of trainees, it seems like everyone's working towards their, their company. It reminds me of the dot-com era. Um, what's your advice to, to scientists of any age, young, old, who aspire to bring their innovation to market? Um, my advice would be to not to think about starting a company um, just because a lot of people are doing it and, uh, and, and certainly not for any profit motive. Um, but, uh, but when their technologies may have the ability to, um, help people who are suffering from some of the intractable diseases that we face, uh, then, um, my, my recommendation was to be, would be that they find a way to get their, get the right expertise around that to make it a product because that's not what we do best. Hmm. Uh, they need to get the experts in uh, to do that and they need to then make the next big discovery. And the way to do that is to find the right commercial partners who they can who they can take that and run with it while that scientist stays involved to some degree in shaping that, uh, but they keep their day job. Hmm. And we need those scientists to go and make the next big discovery. Uh, but we also need them to, because they're the expert in what they discovered, we do need them to help shape the initial stages, at least, of that becoming a product, because there's so many ways that can go wrong hmm. uh, if you don't understand it deeply enough. Uh, so I would encourage scientists to stay involved with their discovery, but keep their day job and make the next big discovery. That's good advice. I mean, I guess the, the idea a lot of scientists have is that's the exit, but you're right. You gotta, you gotta hand it off to the experts, right? Set it free, so to speak. And if it comes back, then maybe you make some money, but at least you got your day job. Um, just to finish briefly, we're going to talk about some kind of science peripheral questions. The first, I love this question to all scientists, but especially as someone who has about a hundred nature papers, what was your greatest or, or, or a memorable, I'm sure you have a few, science revelation or surprise, a so-called aha moment? Well, I, I think we've, uh, we've been fortunate enough to have uh, several of those in new areas over the years. We've opened up a lot of new fields over the years. But I'd say probably the most impactful uh, was the aha moment around when we realized that we had a a combination of transcription factors that could, in fact, uh, convert a fibroblast into a beating heart cell that actually looked really quite beautiful, like a, a real heart cell. Um, and that uh, moment, then it became clear that the rest of it were details we had to figure out that were hard and that has taken a long, number of years, but it the conceptual advance was there mm. that we could in fact convert a cell from one fate to another, uh, right where it is in the organ and improve heart function. So that was probably one of the most satisfying uh, moments uh, of my career to see that we could do that and reduce it to practice. Um, 
Yeah, right. I think people have to recognize, by the way, new to the science is that back in the day, the dogma was nothing could go in reverse, right? And then when Yamanaka yeah. came out, it was like, yeah. okay, well, there's a precedent for that, you know, the egg and reprogramming. But the idea yeah. you go from any one cell to any other cell, and there's yeah. hundreds of them, was like, no way. So yeah, I can imagine right. when you see that, you're like, well, I thought this was no way. It's not just a conceptual event. It just unseeds all the dogma. You must think anything's possible when you see something like that. Exactly. That's right. That's exactly right. If, all right. You, just, if you can crack the code, you can control a cell at will. Hmm. That was the, I think that's a real advantage. So finally, wrapping things up, you know, we're going to ask you a few quick, you know, rapid fire, fill in the blank questions. So starting off, the biggest thing in the stem cell field right now is blank. Our ability to control cell fate at will uh, as we need to for human disease. All right. I would have never gotten to this point in my career without blank. With a lot of luck and uh, brilliant people to work with. Standing on the shoulders. Third, when it comes to blank, I'm pretty much useless. Uh, household chores. <laughs> <laughs> or I should I, let me correct that. Let me correct that. Um, being a handyman. Okay. Chores I do plenty of. <laughs> As fixing we all things, fixing things. I'm pretty useless. <laughs> well, you can't be good at everything. And finally, if the lab catches fire and I have a chance to grab one thing on my way out, it is my blank. Oh, my gosh. Um, I think I would grab my notebook from my postdoctoral training period oh. that has some key and early discoveries that I made uh, that... Uh, I, I would write in my notebook with a lot of emotion and you could see the excitement of discovery in that. What so a great answer. That my trainees. That's such <laughs> a great answer. We've had that question to a lot of people and it's always something practical, not sentimental. And I love that. I, now I'm thinking that I, I, that would be my choice too. It's a piece of history. Everything's in the cloud, by the way, anyway, right? Yeah. So why not take That's something right. that actually That's has right. some value for the heart? Because you're a man who loves the heart, studies the hearts, trying to fix hearts, doing, uh, doing your part to get us there. Thanks so much for joining us, Deepak. This has been a real interesting, fascinating, fun conversation. We hope to have you again on the show as soon as you, you'll have us. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And thanks for doing this. Take Cheers. Care. That brings us to the end of a great show. Thank you so much, Deepak, for joining us. As a leader in the stem cell field, in this troubling time, we really value your insights, and I'm sure our listeners do too. Speaking of our listeners, you guys, don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. You'll be hearing us in another couple of weeks, so stay tuned, guys. We're going to keep on talking if you'll keep listening.